Good evening, little masters, and welcome to episode 120 of the Prancing Pony podcast, where tonight we're going to try not to lose our clothes. <laughs> if we do, we certainly won't be running naked on the grass. Oh, no, no, we will not. And I'm sorry to everyone for that image, but folks, <laughs> we will head on over to the common room. Shirts and shoes required, okay? Absolutely. Is, you know, no service without kind of place. Strict dress code here. We'll be there in just a few moments. But first, <laughs> I'm Sean Marchese, the real-life Lord of the Mark, and I'm here with the man of the West who tells me he no longer feels limp like helpless prey, Alan Sisto. <laughs> hey, watch it, man. I might have to hew your crawling arm off. <laughs> well, you're likely to break your sword in the process. Is that really worth uh, it? Okay, well, maybe. I mean, I suppose you could probably find another one hanging around here somewhere. There are a few, I'm sure. Speaking of things and people, in this case, who hang around, we found a <laughs> Do you oh, like that segue? Oh, we I do. Well, not really, good... no. No, it was terrible. Now that you ask. We, we found a good friend of ours hanging around the halls of the Prancing Pony, and you know what that means, folks. Well, today we're bringing you another new installment of The North Wing. Barlam and Butterbur had a room or two in The North Wing at the Prancing Pony Inn made special for hobbits, and this is our place made special for some of our listeners to give us a chance to get to know them. That's right. Now, rooms at the North Wing are a little hard to come by these days, so only our patrons at the Aileron's Honorarium and Kierdan's contribution tiers are eligible. So if you'd like to be one of the next patrons to join us, be sure to check out patreon.com slash prancingponypod. Please do. We've got a waiting list right now for the North Wing, but we will get to mm -hmm. all of those folks soon, and we'll make room for more if necessary. That's right. Season four. I mean, we're going to be around for a few years, folks, so there's definitely time. That's the plan. In the meantime, why don't we go ahead and welcome tonight's guest to the North Wing, Ed Powell. Ed? Hey. Hey. <laughs> <laughs> Good to talk to you again, Ed. Nice to see you guys again. Yeah, always a pleasure yep. to have you on the show. For those who don't know, we actually just saw Ed very recently at TechSmooth. So uh, it, it really is, hey, we're just chatting again. So it's just hey again, up. yeah. Yeah. Well, why don't we go ahead and start with a little getting to know you question for our listeners who, who don't know you as well as we do. Tell us a little bit about yourself. Where are you from? What do you mm. do? What do your loved ones think of all this Tolkien stuff that you are very, very into? Um, do they think you're a total nerd? Do they like it? That sort of thing. Uh, where am I from? I'm from outside Philadelphia. So I was rooting for last year's Super Bowl. Um, <laughs> uh, where do I live now is in Northern Virginia. And uh, I'm married. Uh, and you met Sharon uh, the other mm -hmm. day. And yep. uh, how do, what do I, my relatives think about the Tolkien thing. I, I think there, uh, my dad got me into Tolkien, so he thought it was uh, oh, okay. in, interesting. And my sisters, uh, my sisters read uh, the Lord of the Rings at least more than I have. So wow, she thinks wow. it's uh, pretty cool. And uh, some of my friends are just as nerdy. So I think they're down with it. Yeah. You're running <laughs> good circles. It sounds like this community does that to people, doesn't it? You make friends with people who are like you. Yeah. We're certainly a nerd uh, convention, that's for sure. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> a rolling nerd convention, absolutely. <laughs> well, Ed, you gave us a really awesome introduction to our keynote at TechSmooth, and of course, we want to thank you for that. And in that, you alluded to something that we knew about you, but that our listeners may not. You've actually been involved with Signum University for a long time. In fact, you're on the board of directors. Can you tell our listeners the story of how you got involved with Corey and his team? Yeah, okay. I mean, like I said the other day, I was paying a workman who had come and done some work and he saw that I had a sting on the wall of my mm -hmm. office. And he said, uh, have you ever heard of the... The sword, not the musician? No, yes, not the sure. musician. <laughs> Only Sorry. if he was wearing his costume from Dune do you want him That's hanging our, on your wall. Oh, 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 fade. Yeah, no. no. Fade Routha. 
I saw Sting uh, last summer at a Did you free, con- free concert. Yeah. Oh, yeah cool. I, right I, like, I like the sharp, shiny one better, but yeah. it was all right. <laughs> he, he didn't glow blue around the edges, though? No. No. Yeah, so I, uh, I, he said to me... Um, <laughs> I'm sorry. Delayed reaction. <laughs> that was really delayed. <laughs> he said, uh, have you ever heard of uh, the uh, Tolkien Professor podcast? And my, this was about mm. 10 years ago. And my response was, what's a podcast? Yeah. <laughs> so I was like, I had to yeah. I have to Google this. And so I started uh, started out and then he had uh, this uh, myth moot uh, one. Mm-hmm. And uh, Sharon and I went and we had a good time and met him and met all the other nerds. And uh, I don't know, we started taking auditing classes, auditing, not actually taking for credit because I've taken my last class for credit in my life. Congratulations. And then I don't know, I think, uh, I think Corey had a uh, particularly bad uh, medicine that he was using or something, but he asked me to be on the board of directors. I I think it was probably pain medication that he had too much of and thought, well, maybe this Ed guy. (laughs) You slipped something in his drink, huh? Yeah, it might be. He might be appropriate. Make him, yeah, yeah. Make him suggestible. I I do have a PhD and that does look good to, uh, Ah. you know, potential other people. So Yeah, Yeah, that would. That makes sense. That's the, I think that's the kind of reason. Nothing relevant though. So, um, (laughs) So yeah, so then I was on the board and we basically do the legal oversight for the corporation, which is Signum mm, University, mm-hmm. and make sure that okay. uh, everything's on the up and up. And right. mostly mm-hmm. it's it's like every other thing with Corey. We just listen to Corey talk for two hours. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. Well, you, yeah. So you've been around since the very beginning, Myth Moot 1. Yes, yes, we. I've been to all of them. Sharon missed uh, number two, but she's been to all the other ones. Um, My goodness, yeah, yeah. So it's uh, it's been fun. I made a lot of good friends. It's all mm-hmm. a, a great crowd, and of course, yeah. You know, I found out last summer that uh, these prancing pony guys had been on were <laughs> on the agenda for Myth Moot Five, and I'm, I'm like, I gotta <laughs> listen to some of their uh, some of their podcasts. So I went back and and said. And looked at you know look at the podcast and like there's like 75 of these and they start at the very beginning i'm not going to do that that's crazy i'll just listen to a couple of the interviews so there i did go. listen to the interviews and then of course i met you guys and found out that you were right. great fellows and i thought well no i am going to take the plunge and i'm going to start back with episode one and i did and uh, mm-hmm. i'm now caught up it's, it's been, quite an accomplishment it's been it's been great yeah i know it's been great you guys are different uh corey's approach oh, yeah. to the text is very much close reading or as i mm-hmm. um said the other day uh read the words which yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's a good approach it is as a yeah. science student that that was amazing nobody had ever told me that before that the way you approach literature is to read the actual words on the page that was <laughs> shocking to me it's like oh wow you know you get much more out of it when you read the words yeah, yeah, you do. So, uh, but you guys bring in a lot more uh, material from other places, whether it's the history of Middle Earth or, or some of the scholarship around it, that mm-hmm. you kind of build a picture around each segment. And I, I think that's a, uh, and also a very interesting and worthwhile take on the text. And I, I really do appreciate uh, all of the work you guys have put into doing this well, podcast because it's uh, it's really excellent. Well, thanks. Well, Ed. thank that's you very kind. much, Ed. Thank you very much. And we are, we're, you know, we're thrilled that we've met you. It was, it was, it's been, it's been great getting to know you and we're mm-hmm. just really happy to have you in our corner. Yep. I'm here. Well, 
<laughs> and we appreciate it. Well, like I'm going to go Burgess, ahead and move Meredith, on to and Rocky, you know. Yeah, I was going to say you're our cut man. Huh? Just... <laughs> exactly. And we need one. But uh, I'm going to move that on to the, uh, the, the question we ask everybody who comes to the Prancing Pony. I think you actually answered this one a moment ago. When and how did you first discover Tolkien's works? What was your experience like and, and why do you keep coming back? Well, I was 14 years old and my dad got the books lent to him by a, a colleague at work who thought he might like them. And, and uh, he read The Hobbit. And uh, when he started The Lord of the Rings, he handed me The Hobbit and said, you know, you would, you would probably like this. And so I, I read it, I consumed it, and uh, mm -hmm. then I started uh, reading The Lord of the Rings. And of course, mostly when he was at work, this was over the summer. And I finished before he did because I just consumed it during the day while he was at yeah. work. And uh, I miss summer reading. I really do. Then I gave it to my sister. Oh, wow. Right and, on. And she, she was like, I don't want to read this. This is stupid. And, <laughs> but she got, we got really bored one day on a very long car trip. Shit, so she started it on The Hobbit. And, you know, like most brothers with younger sisters the point of car trips is to torture your younger yeah. sister during the oh day. absolutely but as soon as she picked up the hobbit i was like okay i'm going to be quiet and i'm going to sit on my side of the car for the rest of the trip just so that she could read it you know right and on that's so, cool and she did and she got hooked so she's yep. just as hooked as i was so that was my origin story then i i read of the silmarillion immediately following the lord of the rings mm -hmm. and uh from front to back and i'm like okay this is different but i got it <laughs> yeah that's a way to put it yeah but i wasn't one of those who like uh threw it away or came back to it later i motored right through and then i read the unfinished tales which mm -hmm. uh, my parents bought me the first american edition when it was published and uh, okay yeah and i've gotten through most of the history of middle earth not i think i have two volumes left to do in that mm -hmm. are you going sequentially through that I did. I did read them sequentially, yeah. and then I've been rereading them as Corey's gone through them in the Mythgard Academy yeah. series. Yeah. 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 Cool. So which one is your favorite book in the Legendarium and why? And then which one is your favorite non-Legendarium work, if, if you have one? Uh, well, I, we're all boring. It's The Lord of the Rings, and I think it's because uh, <laughs> it, has every, it has everything in it, you know, and yeah. it is a, a, a long tale. Uh, but not as long as, say, George R. R. Martin. And uh, it does <laughs> yeah. have I – I will tell you a story. I was in the bookstore. It's about a year, a year and a half ago, and uh, we still have bookstores. And so I was uh, looking in the science fiction fantasy section, of course, and I, I looked, and there's a new edition of The Lord of the Rings I hadn't seen. And so I picked it up. It's one book edition. And uh, leafed through and started reading on a page. And uh, – I got goosebumps because the language was so beautiful. You know, I've read yeah. it a billion mm -hmm. times and I'm like, wow, if, if a book can do that, just picking up and reading on a random page after mm -hmm. so many times, yeah. then you know yeah. it's something special. Boy, you're not kidding. And as far as uh, the non lindrodurium stuff, I do, have a, I do have a soft spot in my heart for uh, Leaf by Niggle. Yeah. Um, because I, I have a tendency to do that. I have a tendency to go deep into things and thus never mm -hmm. finish them. Mm -hmm. So that I see that in myself yeah. as well. So that's yeah. kind of my favorite non-legendarian work. Excellent. Well, Ed, I know you're a cat guy and I it's am. always a pleasure to have another one of us around. Ah, awesome. Have you ever given a pet a name inspired by Tolkien? 
No, I haven't. Um, our two cats, which we just lost last uh, summer, um, were wow. Alexander and Aristotle, because we were we were into mm. um, classical history, cool. Sharon and I. And right. the real life Aristotle was the tutor of the real life Alexander. Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So um, uh, our Aristotle was the smart one, and our Alexander was the one who wants wanted to go um, wanted invade, to conquer the world, conquer the Persians specifically, because you know. <laughs> <laughs> Persian cats are. They think they're the queen of everything. Um, But no, we did not give any pets uh, any Lord of the Rings or Tolkien-related names, but I think there may be cats in our future, and we'll have to... uh, We'll have to review that. I, I get, I routinely get <laughs> suggestions from people of what we're going to name the the new cats, and we're, mm-hmm. the new cats probably haven't even been conceived yet. But uh, when we do get around <laughs> right. to it, we might think of that. Yeah. Speaking of the the classical cat names, I had a uh, I had a, a ragdoll cat named Claudia. That was mine. She passed away a couple of years ago, and she was named after uh, the Roman Emperor Claudius. So oh, cool. uh, ah, right, right there with you on that. But. Uh, well, very good. You're going to have to keep us posted when you get those cats. Please do. Believe me, if I get the cats, Facebook will be nothing but cat The pictures. world will know. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> There's a little button that might have to say something like, see less from Ed. Yeah. <laughs> For 30 Except, days. How can Not you? me, man. Keep it coming. No, I'm, I'm kidding. Send all your cat pics to me. Okay. There you go. Well, we're going to go ahead and move on to the lightning round. These are, now, I just, we're terrible at lightning round, but we're going to try. How's that? Yeah, I was. I was okay. ter- I'm terrible at, at oral exams. Just awful. <laughs> okay, here we go. I'm going to start out. Who's your favorite elf from the first age? Okay, I'm going to give you two, and you're not going to like one: uh, Feanor and Luthien. <laughs> okay. <laughs> and and I'll t- I'll give you the two sentence about Feanor. He he moved the plot forward. He did things. He didn't just sit around and have festivals. He moved things. He he was the key actor. He was an actor. He acted. He did stuff. And same with Luthien. So I like that, even though he's obviously a bad guy in a lot of respects. Fair enough. I can respect that. Yeah. <laughs> What's the one place in Middle Earth you wish you could visit? Wow, there's so many. Um, you know, there's the classical Hobbiton, Rivendell, Edoras, uh, Minas Tirith. Um, but mm-hmm. I guess if I'm going to be honest, I'd probably like to see the Grey Havens. Mm. Mm. Nice. That would be beautiful. Do you consider yourself a Merry or a Pippin? I'm more of a Pippin. <laughs> okay. As you can probably tell. <laughs> well, you know, I, yeah. I, I, it wasn't an answer for me to give. <laughs> One does not simply walk into Mordor, but if you could... Who would you rather have at your side, Aragorn or Glorfindel? Ooh, wow. That's an excellent question. I I think I'm going to have to go with Aragorn because he's been there before. There you go. Fair enough. Favorite poem or song in the Legendarium? I'm so conventional, and I do apologize, but the road goes ever on and on. (laughs) There you go. You can't argue with that one. It's a classic. Absolutely. Well, those are great answers, Ed. Thank you. You know, we really have enjoyed having you here in the North Wing, but I think it's time for all of us to head back to the common room to join the rest of the listeners. Thanks again, Ed, and we will see you back here at our next Questions After Nightfall, if not sooner. See you guys. And now we return you to the podcast in progress. We had a great time talking to Ed, and I hope you all enjoyed hearing from him. We've got a few more reservations lined up for the North Wing, folks, so stay tuned for more. Absolutely. Now, before we move on to our chapter discussion tonight, we want to take a minute to thank listener Jordan Ellis Rennells for sponsoring this week's episode. 
Jordan is a musician, composer, and music teacher, and Tolkien reader. Just as we've spent a lot of time exploring and analyzing the themes of Tolkien's works, Jordan has invested time in understanding the way Howard Shore composed the scores for the Lord of the Rings films. Mm -hmm. And he's looking to take on new music students, well, from anywhere in the world, for piano, drums, guitar, or any other fretted instrument, for Skype-based lessons. And he's also looking for folks who are interested in studying music composition. And Jordan has spent years devising his own methods and explanations in music theory and relates the technical concepts back to real life and human emotions. Mm -hmm. So if you play an instrument, or if you're interested in studying music composition with an experienced composer and music teacher, or if you need some sound design and scoring done for a project of your own, be sure to visit www.learntolisten.net. And please be sure to let him know you heard about him here on the Prancing Pony podcast when you reach out. That's www.learntolisten.net for Skype-based music lessons or to study music composition with Jordan Ellis Rennells. And we'll be sure to put a link to his site in our show notes and social media posts. Mm -hmm. And thanks, Jordan. Now, let's get back into the Barrow Downs and see just how strong Tom's song is today. <laughs> All right. I'm going to go ahead and pick up where we left off last week. Uh, right after Frodo had been captured by the, the Barrow White. That would be the Barrow White, not the Barry White. Not, not the Just, Barry White. Mm, Frodo. <laughs> yeah, you're looking good, Frodo, baby. All right. When he came to himself again, for a moment he could recall nothing except a sense of dread. Then suddenly he knew that he was imprisoned, caught hopelessly. He was in a Barrow. A Barrow White had taken him, and he was probably already under the dreadful spells of the Barrowites, about which whispered tales spoke. He dared not move, but lay as he found himself, flat on his back upon a cold stone, his hands on his breast. But though his fear was so great that it seemed to be part of the very darkness that was round him, he found himself, as he lay, thinking about Bilbo Baggins and his stories, of their jogging along together in the lanes of the Shire, and talking about roads and adventures. There is a seed of courage hidden, often deeply, it is true, in the heart of the fattest and most timid hobbit, waiting for some final and desperate danger to make it grow. Frodo was neither very fat nor very timid. Indeed, though he did not know it, Bilbo and Gandalf had thought him the best hobbit in the Shire. He thought he had come to the end of his adventure, and a terrible end, but the thought hardened him. He found himself stiffening, as if for a final spring, he no longer felt limp like a helpless prey. Pretty, pretty amazing transformation that you see yeah. there in that passage. And I, I really like the way you read that. Oh, well, thank you, sir. I, I didn't even think about it from that perspective. But yeah, the, the, the fear, sort of this roller coaster uh, of emotions, mm -hmm. the fear that's so great, it becomes, it's palpable, it's tangible. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And then it just transitions into these wonderful thoughts and memories mm -hmm. yeah. uh, and, and how that is what helps this seed, this seed of courage uh, to grow even in the midst of these challenging circumstances. I, I love it. Mm -hmm. it. It really, honestly, it reminds me of a bit from the prologue. Uh, there's, there's a line that actually I want to read real briefly. It says that, nonetheless, ease and peace had left this people still curiously tough. They were, if it came to it, difficult to daunt or to kill. They were doughty at bay. And that just means brave or persistent. Right. Yeah. And you really see how, how Frodo sort of embodies that here in this scene. You know, oh, absolutely. A, a hobbit pushed to, pushed to an extreme situation and, you know, they, they come through 
Mm-hmm. They managed yeah. to find that courage, you know, and um, and pretty quickly at that, really, pretty quickly. Yeah, you're right. Pretty impressive. You're right. So yeah, I, I was noticing that one of our themes popped back up, and that's the hope and despair concept. The uh, the the contrast between hope and despair yeah, is the word yeah. I'm looking for. And this really is that. We first we have this despairing moment that the fear is part of the darkness around him, uh, and then we have it also showing up in what might have been in the very end of that reading when he no longer felt limp like a helpless prey. That's that's mm-hmm. despair. If he were to still feel that way, he clearly would be, uh, you know, controlled by that despair. And instead, we yeah. have real genuine hope. He finds true hope, absolutely. Yeah. Even if it's hope to just face his end, right? I mean, he, he thinks he's at the end, but that thought of being at his end hardens him. It brings him hope. Uh, it, it's, you know, this is one of those uh, backs to the wall moments that we talked about in Beowulf. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. And I, I noticed something as you were reading it just now that the, that both the hope and the despair are linked to stories, mm. you know, yes, Frodo, they are, aren't they? Frodo feels despair because he's heard about the spells of the Barrowites and these whispered tales and yeah. he fears he's already under a spell. That's why he's in, that's why he's in despair. He feels like it's too late to do anything. Yeah. Yeah. But then he gains hope by thinking about Bilbo and his stories. And, you know, the difference between despair and hope is basically the difference between a horror story that ends in tragedy yeah, and yeah. an adventure story that ends, well, he doesn't know it yet, but it's going to end with a catastrophe. That's true. Yes, it will. And, you know, we even get a mention of the actual word hopelessly, which we don't normally get. But earlier, you know, he knew that he was imprisoned, caught hopelessly. Oh, good point. Yeah. So, you know, there is a, a, a literal sense of of no more hope. Yep. Uh, but and, and even in that circumstance, he still finds something, finds that courage. It's really yeah. wonderful. That's a very I, good catch. I also thought Frodo's high standing in the eyes of Bilbo and Gandalf was interesting, wasn't it? That's really neat. Yeah. Yeah. He was the, yeah. They thought him the best hobbit in the Shire. That says a lot. I think it's easy for us sometimes to to either sit in judgment of Frodo and, and kind of, you know, ticky-tack, pick apart, uh, Monday morning quarterback, uh, every one of his decisions as though he's, <laughs> you know, making some sort of mistakes. I don't feel like we do that that much. No, no, no. I, I, but it's easy to do that. And I think sometimes that happens. It's a trap to fall into. Yeah. Um, but it's, well, he's the ma- he's the main character, and so right, you spend right. a lot of time, you know, he spends a lot of time driving events in the story. So yeah, yes, I mean, I guess does. you can. You, I, I suppose you can you can do a little bit about uh, a little bit of that. Mm-hmm. But uh, yeah, Frodo is truly an exceptional hobbit, and yeah. y- you really see that here. You, you do. Know? I mean, he's not—he's not fat or timid. He's no. the best hobbit in the show. No, this isn't Fatty Bolger, who I don't think would react quite the same way. Probably not. And, and I think it's interesting. It's not just Bilbo that thought him the finest, uh, the best hobbit in the Shire, but it was Gandalf. And Gandalf that, too. Yeah, that speaks that a little bit something. more. Yeah, yeah, it really does. Uh, good, good stuff. Yeah. As if for a final spring, he's ready. He's ready to fight. To the, to the last breath. He's not going to go down without a fight. Back against the wall is a good call out. I mean, that's yeah. that very Anglo-Saxon, going to do much. what I have to do. I'm, I'm going to die, but I'm, I'm going to do something before I do. That's absolutely I'm go right. Down fighting. Yeah. Courage, resolve, it's strength in the face of death. There's no giving in to that despair. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But then, uh, even though we're not going to read this next paragraph, we start to see that the, the light starts to show up and he sees the others. Uh, interesting. Well, the light seems to be coming from himself. Is that an interesting thing? That is very interesting. You know, this pale greenish light, this makes me think of Peter Jackson. 
<laughs> you're right. You're right. You know all how the always, undead stuff. Yeah, all the undead stuff had that pale green light. Yeah, and, I mean, like the Dead Men of Dunharrow and uh-huh. Minas Morgul. I still think he would have done such a good job with this. Scene oh, I know. As, this would have been an amazing director. scene. I, totally I wish, creepy. Totally scary. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I just really wish he would have done it. Um, well, you couldn't have done it without Tom. And like yeah, we said true. earlier, you know, a few episodes back, uh, from a film perspective, from that cinematic perspective, Tom just doesn't move the story forward enough. Right, exactly. And, yeah. that, and I think that's ultimately why he didn't do it. I bet he would yeah. have loved to do this scene. Oh, I'm because sure. Because it is so scary. It's right in his wheelhouse. It really is. Yeah, I mean, the, you know, the... Well, the crawling arm we'll see in a little bit here. I mean, that's <laughs> yeah, that would have been so that's cool vintage to do Peter this. Jackson right there. Exactly, yeah. exactly. But you know, going back to the light, it does make me think of the way he depicted Minas Morgul and the way Tolkien described Minas Morgul was having a corpse yes. light, a light that illuminated nothing. Mm. I feel like there's a little bit of that here in sort of this light that's coming from Frodo yeah. and doesn't go far enough to really illuminate anything it doesn't go all the way to the roof or the wall he just sees you know he can see himself and he can just see you know his he friends can just barely see his friends but yeah yeah you're right yeah uh, and what does he see of course he sees them uh clad in white uh they're just lying there on their backs with all this this you know treasure around them the mm-hmm. circlets and gold chains and all sorts of stuff uh, swords and shields at their feet but one long naked sword all the way across the three of them, the oh, three of their man. necks. Man. Yeah. That is just so creepy. We're going to talk more about this, aren't we? Yes, we are. Why they're decked out like this. Yeah. We'll, we'll, we're going to wait until we get to a later point in this episode, I think, right? When yeah. we talk a little bit more yeah. about who was originally who, here. Who's and, here. And, yeah, yeah, exactly. Yep. Yeah. Okay, good. I want to make sure... I, that we would touch on it, but I didn't want to didn't want to spoil that yet. Yeah. I'm going to have you though pick up right after that the arrival of the White himself. All right. Suddenly, a song began. A cold murmur rising and falling. The voice seemed far away and immeasurably dreary, sometimes high in the air and thin, sometimes like a low moan from the ground. Out of the formless stream of sad but horrible sounds, strings of words would now and again shape themselves. Grim, hard, cold words, heartless and miserable. The night was railing against the morning of which it was bereaved, and the cold was cursing the warmth for which it hungered. Mm. Frodo was chilled to the marrow. After a while, the song became clearer, and with dread in his heart, he perceived that it had changed into an incantation. Cold be hand and heart and bone, and cold be sleep under stone. Nevermore to wake on stony bed. Never till the sun fails and the moon is dead. In the black wind the stars shall die, and still on gold here let them lie, till the dark lord lifts his hand over dead sea and withered land. (laughs) He heard behind his head a creaking and scraping sound. 
Raising himself on one arm, he looked, and saw now in the pale light that they were in a kind of passage, which behind them turned a corner. Round the corner, a long arm was groping, walking on its fingers towards Sam, who was lying nearest, and towards the hilt of the sword that lay upon him. <laughs> this is just terrible. Ah, is right. Oh my goodness. Man. The groping arm walking on its fingers Walk. just Oh, that's so Ugh. God. It's amazing though. Just it is, brilliant it? as a oh. as a as a oh, little just... bit of a fan of horror movies and I don't read <laughs> I don't read much horror fiction anymore, but I used to when I was younger. Man, this yeah. is just a this is as scary as, oh, yeah, as it, it is. gets. It's right I mean, up there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Absolutely. Before we dig into that, or even before we dig into the song itself, there was a sentence right before that that I thought was really, really telling, and, and also beautifully written. The night was railing against the morning of which it was bereaved, and the cold was cursing the warmth for which it hungered. Mm-hmm. Yeah. There's a I, lot there. Yeah. Yeah, there is. I mean, these these are words of I mean, what I see here, these are just words of emptiness and hate, you know, yeah. bereaved and hungered and cursing. Yeah. Um, that's what I see here is just so yeah. much, so much hate and anger and, and just emptiness. And loss. Right. And, you and know, loss, we'd, we'd, even, yeah. we'd even gotten a hint of that, uh, the line before, when we hear that the, the sound, the stream of words is, is sad but horrible. There's mm-hmm. ever so slightly this sorrow that's present. Yeah. And it's what drives the anger. And yeah. so, of course, that sorrow, uh, that, that absence, the things that it misses, the bereavement for the morning mm-hmm. and the hunger for the warmth leads to the railing and the cursing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, man. That, no wonder Frodo's chilled to the marrow. I'm well, chilled. Yeah, I'm chilled. Yeah. And yeah. I'm, I'm looking at these words on a page. And know? not in a barrow. Yeah. Right. I'm, in a, I'm just in a sound booth, <laughs> thankfully. Right. Not, in a, not in a barrow. The, the incantation itself, though, that was intriguing. Now, I have to say, Hammond and Skull reference a very similar verse. It's actually an orc oath, of all things, uh, from the Lay of Lathian that's well worth reading. And I'm going to go ahead and take that. Okay. Death to light, to law, to love. Cursed be moon and stars above. May darkness everlasting old that waits outside and surges cold drown Manwe, Varda, and the sun. May all in hatred be begun. And all in evil ended be in the moaning of the endless sea. Yeah. The yeah, orcs can lot. rhyme. There's they a did. lot there that they, oh, yeah. they can rhyme. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, there is a lot there. And there's a lot of similarity. Because mm-hmm. in both of these, uh, th- this is a very dark future envisioned by both songs. This cold, yes. dead world ruled mm-hmm. by the Dark Lord. It's yeah. Just, and. And I have some mm. more thoughts on that that I want to talk about in a moment. But yeah. you're absolutely right. They're both foreshadowing this, like you said, a, 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 a dead world yeah. ruled over by the Dark Lord. Oh, just total darkness in both mm-hmm. cases. Uh, mm-hmm. The sun fails, the moon is dead. Here we've got cursed be moon and stars above. Mm-hmm. Manway, Varda, and the sun are going to be drowned. Be drowned. So the sun's mm-hmm. also gone too. And, and just begun in hatred, ended in yeah. evil. Yeah. Yeah. Same, yeah, just that same darkness, that same yeah. uh, all-absorbing evil. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yep. Goodness. All-consuming 
Yes, you're absolutely right. So the long arm, any, that just is the creepiest moment ever, isn't it? I mean, truly. Yeah. Truly is. Yeah. Walking it's certainly on the its scariest fingers. thing we've seen. Yeah. Who's that? Uh, not cousin it, right? Who's the, <laughs> <laughs> who? What? Uh, the thing, right? Not thing. the thing, or just thing, thing right? Cousin yeah, it thing. was the was the dude with was the, the hair. hairy one. Yeah. yeah, yeah. But yeah, thing was the one with the was the hand. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Disembodied hand. Yeah. Uh, I, I was reading someplace. Somebody saying that this wasn't necessarily a disembodied hand, but I think there's a phrase we're going to see in the next episode at the end of the chapter uh, that suggests it really is disembodied that's yeah i no, i i know what you're saying because it doesn't say that it doesn't it is, specifically but... say that the long arm not attached to a shoulder was groping but but no. if it's attached to a shoulder what the heck is it walking on its fingers for? right right and when we see what happens to it later yeah yeah, yeah there's it doesn't really appear to be attached to anything <laughs> no, I, I see it as a disembodied arm also i, I do as well so before we move on, is there anything else you want to touch on? I know you mentioned going back to the uh, incantation a little bit. No, let's leave that there for now. I'm going to come back to it in just a moment. Okay. Well, then I'm going to go ahead and pick up exactly where you left off. This is sort of the, the temptation of Frodo and his wonderful response. At first, Frodo felt as if he had indeed been turned into stone by the incantation. Then a wild thought of escape came to him. He wondered if he put on the ring whether the Barrow White would miss him, and he might find some way out. He thought of himself running free over the grass, grieving for Mary and Sam and Pippin, but free and alive himself. Gandalf would admit that there had been nothing else he could do. But the courage that had been awakened in him was now too strong. He could not leave his friend so easily. He wavered, groping in his pocket, and then fought with himself again, and as he did so, the arm crept nearer. Suddenly, resolve hardened in him, and he seized a short sword that lay beside him, and kneeling, he stooped low over the bodies of his companions. With what strength he had, he hewed at the crawling arm near the wrist, and the hand broke off. But at the same moment, the sword splintered up to the hilt. There was a shriek, and the light vanished. In the dark, there was a snarling noise. Yeah. Go yep. Frodo. I know. That's a that's a victory. That's a little victory, but that's a, a yeah. A big victory, it, really. It's really a big victory, absolutely. I mean, yep. because it's not just a victory over despair and hopelessness like we talked about. It's a victory over the ring, isn't it? Mm-hmm. It is. It, it's really his first victory over the ring because when he almost put it on before, he wasn't saved because he was able to fight the temptation. He mm-hmm. was saved because the black rider took off. Right. Here he is truly in a situation where everything in his being is telling him to put on this ring and get out. Right. Every bit of instinct right. is survival mode. But he does not go that way. He fights his that that desire, yeah. fights with himself, and he's victorious. It's a beautiful thing. He fights thing. with himself and and with the ring, as you said, because you know, this isn't just a this isn't just a self-preservation instinct no. that's going no, haywire this is here. The I mean ring. Yeah. he is terrified and he, you know, he probably does he would love to escape with his life if he could. Who but, wouldn't? <laughs> yeah, exactly. But the the thought of the ring, the fact that he, you know, he thinks about putting on the ring, I think that tells us that this is the ring at work. I mean, it Oh yeah. It yeah. wants to get out of there. It doesn't want to end up in <laughs> in this no. barrow, no. in this horde for centuries, you know. Exactly. I think this is this is really awesome. And this is this is why Frodo is the best hobbit in the Shire, according to yes. Bilbo and Gandalf. Absolutely. And you know, in a way, we 
we look forward to Gandalf's comment about this being the most dangerous moment when he's recovering in Rivendell. I think Gandalf's talking about this as the the highlight, if you will, the the, the mm-hmm. most touch and go moment. I believe he says is something yeah. about you know it was really touch and go. Uh, this was this was crucial. He puts on yeah. that ring. The story might be at an end. Yeah, it could be. And of course, the ring. You said the ring at work. Look at one of the things the ring was doing. It was helping him to rationalize the idea. Oh, there's Absolutely. nothing else I could have done. Yeah. Oh yeah. no, it's too late for those guys. Yeah. Yeah. Nothing else. They're, we they're do. done. I need to get out. I need I'm, to get I'm out too here. important. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I'm more important than they are. Yeah. Yeah. This is definitely the ring doing its doing its best. Uh, what's the word? You know, kind of that. Just that temptation. You know, that yeah, that yeah, Sauron yeah. Kind of temptation. Temptation. Self deception. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yes. Yeah. You know, interesting that the sword splinters when he strikes the arm. Yeah, I thought that was a little interesting. This seems to happen a lot when you, when you kill something that's not creatures. quite alive. Right. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. We'll see more of this later. Yes, we yeah. will. We will see it more than once, as a matter mm-hmm. of fact. So, but you're going to take this next little bit here, and then we'll discuss. Well, we'll have a lot to discuss after that, but I'm going to go ahead and have you pick up. Okay, so I'm picking up just a just a sentence after where you left off, and so Frodo right. is fallen over Mary, and Mary's cold. All at once, back into his mind, from which it had disappeared with the first coming of the fog, came the memory of the house down under the hill, and of Tom singing. He remembered the rhyme that Tom had taught them. In a small, desperate voice, he began, "Oh." Tom Bombadil. And with that name, his voice seemed to grow strong. It had a full and lively sound, and the dark chamber echoed as if to drum and trumpet. Ho, Tom Bombadil, Tom Bombadillo, by water, wood, and hill, by the reed and willow, by fire, sun, and moon, hearken now and hear us. Come, Tom Bombadil, for our need is near us. There was a sudden deep silence in which Frodo could hear his heart beating. After a long, slow moment, he heard plain, but far away, as if it was coming down through the ground or through thick walls, an answering voice singing, Old Tom Bombadil is a merry fellow, bright blue his jacket is and his boots are yellow, none has ever caught him yet for Tom he is the master, his songs are stronger songs and his feet are faster. Well, apparently rather fast indeed, if he was able to make it here. Got there that quickly, yeah. Yeah, uh, very quick. I love, though, how just the mere singing of Tom's name changes. Gives Frodo the strength. voice. Yeah. Isn't that mm-hmm. great? Yeah, second little but great victory here in this scene. You know, first. Mm, yeah, yeah, you're right. First triumphing over the ring uh, yeah. and striking at the at the white's hand. But now. You know, finding this hope in Tom's song, this this strength in Tom's song. This yeah. is a big theme in The Hobbit, I feel. You know, sort of Bilbo finding his courage, finding his mm. inner toque and things like that. Yeah, absolutely. And it, it's interesting. We've talked a couple of times before about how Sam has more in common with Bilbo from The Hobbit, you know, in yeah. a lot of ways. And so we'll see a lot of those finding your courage moments for Sam later on. Oh, yeah. Um, I can't remember as many for Frodo later in the book, but there's a couple of really big ones here early mm-hmm. in the book. And this is just such a such a powerful one. Yeah, there's one right near the end of book one, as a matter of fact, that we'll get to. Yes, in there months. is. That's, that's <laughs> one of my favorites. I know that's one of your favorites. Absolutely. And then we get Tom's song. 
I, I mean, yeah. you know, so 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 Frodo sings the rhyme, right? The nine one one or the nine 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 rhyme, uh, and then Tom's song. After what seems like an eternity, Tom comes. <laughs> yeah, a long slow moment. Yeah, nine one one. What's your emergency? Right. <laughs> uh, I'm in a barrow. I don't know. Uh, do you have the address? <laughs> no, it's a it's a barrow. Um, all right, stand on the line. I'm inside it. I can't walk out and look at the address. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, you know, we spoke recently about how Tom Bombadil may have been inspired by this character from the Kalevala, this singing wizard of Vinamoinen. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. uh, Hammond and Skull... Also known as Better You Than Me, by the way. Just, <laughs> I'm just saying. <laughs> Fortunately, a lot of good resources online for how to pronounce Vinamoinen. Good, so because any, any word that has three umlauts in it is just one I'm not going to bother with. Right. Yeah, totally. I don't blame you for that. <laughs> yeah, because you're wondering... I have a hard I... limit of two umlauts. <laughs> two umlauts per word. <laughs> Yeah. Oh, man. Sorry. <laughs> Limited to mentions of like Motorhead and Motley Crue. And that's there you go. <laughs> Spinal Tap. <laughs> but Hammond and Skull oh, uh, shared an, an essay from David Gay, who says that for both the wizard and Tom, power comes from their command of song and lore rather than from ownership and domination. Hmm. To have power over something in the mythology of the Kalevala, one must know its origins and be able to sing the appropriate songs and incantations concerning these origins. Mm, okay, yeah. Great power in the world of the Kalevala requires great age and great knowledge, and Vinamoinen has both. A large part of his power comes from the fact that, as the oldest of all living things, he saw the creation of things, heard their names, and knows the songs of their origins. Gay finally observes that, the same is clearly true of Tom Bombadil. Yeah. I mean, that, and it, I love he that. knows the song for, oh, I know the song Exa for Old Man Willow. I know Willow. the tune for Old Man Willow. That's right. right. That's exactly yeah. what that means. Yep. Wow. So I love that, that it's, you have to know the origins and sing the mm -hmm. appropriate songs and that that mm -hmm. knowledge comes from great age. Yeah. Uh, clearly Tom being eldest gives him yeah. great power. Yep. And of course, great responsibility because that of always. Of course, comes with because great with power. great power comes great responsibility. Yeah, it's just part of the deal. It it reminds me not only of Spider Man but also of uh, of the the Earthsea books by Ursula K. Le Guin. I don't oh know yeah, if yeah. You've started yeah. you know started reading I, those yet? But I've started. Um, I've, I've tried to dabble. I just you know how it is when you're it, when you're working to on find a podcast. Time it's hard to, to find read time for pleasure. I know it's like yeah. I. I, I make such slow time through those books now, but yeah, that, you know anybody who's read those books knows that. The whole system of magic in that world is based on knowing the true names of things, right? And right. Uh, and it's exactly like that, and that's um, that's just so cool. It's a it's a great idea, and it's cool that we see it here, and that it's got its roots in this Finnish myth. Yeah, the How did you Kalevala. pronounce it a little different than before? Kalevala. Kalevala. So the, the emphasis is on the first. Yeah, I think I've always yeah. said Kalevala in the past. Yeah, and I kind I've, of I had too. And I started hearing Kalevala. Okay. Which is very okay. subtle. I think it's just you know, it is. is it, the first syllable or the third syllable that is more pronounced, but right, I could be wrong. I don't know. Well, it's not kale vala, that's for sure. No, it's not. It has it's nothing to do not with that. kale in your salad. I just want to make sure we're no. Clear about the kale, that. the kale vala is Yvonne. She, <laughs> she is the kale vala. Hundred right. recipes for kale salad. Oh goodness! And Aule eats none of them. Right. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so we're not going to read this, but the chamber. Um, comes apart a little bit. The light streams in. I love that the, the phrase is the plain light of day. I absolutely love that because 
there are times yeah. when just that plain light is the most amazing thing you could hope for. Yeah, um, absolutely. Especially and, yeah. after seeing this sort of this pale, oh, you know, goodness, that pale again, green I'm still light. Yeah, I'm thinking of this this corpse light, you know, as Tolkien yeah, calls it in two that's towers. That's a great yeah. way of putting it. Uh huh. So there's Tom's head. I love even yep. Tolkien hat popping feather up, and all. Hat <laughs> feather mean, and all popping up. Yep. What a description. Hey there. <laughs> what can I do for you? <laughs> you rang. <laughs> That's yeah. great stuff. But then he he gets his he gets his song on right. He gets his fight going. He gets his yeah. Finrod versus Sauron moment here. Uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Though is. I imagine Finrod sang with a little more dignity. Um, <laughs> yeah, probably lots, le- lot less uh, dillos. Yeah, probably a lot less dillos. Uh, no armadillos for that matter. Uh, no, and and you mentioned, actually, we, we weren't going to read any of this verse just because we read so much verse uh, earlier in the chapter, but you wanted to touch on the last couple of lines, didn't you? Yeah, I did, because we both had some thoughts on this song, and I just thought these last couple of lines were worth highlighting for our listeners. Yeah. The song ends with, Lost and forgotten be, darker than the darkness, where gates stand forever shut till the world is mended. Mm. Mm. And. And you said yeah. that that last line reminded you of... Yeah, of the vanishing of Morgoth. That's right. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, Hammond and Skull pointed out as well, so I'm just going to read that passage from the Silmarillion. But Morgoth himself, the Valar, thrust through the door of night beyond the walls of the world into the timeless void. And a guard is set forever on those walls, and Eärendil keeps watch upon the ramparts of the sky. You know, if I'd seen his name in there, I would have let you read it. because it's No, it's you wouldn't. It, no, you right. wouldn't. I would have felt bad about it, though. How's that? All right, I'm going to. You just going. got my attention with it. I said, "Oh, I <laughs> yeah, Oh, okay. Randall, yeah. I'm listening. Uh, there you go. Yes. Yet the lies that Melkor, the mighty and accursed, Morgoth, Bauglir, the power of terror and of hate, sowed in the hearts of elves and men, are a seed that does not die and cannot be destroyed, and ever and anon it sprouts anew, and will bear dark fruit even unto the latest days. So that door of night thing, yeah. Yeah, and that is such a cool catch as to, oh, you know, what this what this banishing really means, yeah. you know, if if it has that if it has that force, which we yeah, have. Yeah, if it has that authority, it which, you mm-hmm. know, I got to say if anybody does so you know, outside of, yeah, outside of Manway, a, I would say Tom right. certainly would be the one. There's no reason to believe that it, you know, that these are empty words. I'm sure that it's no. that's exactly what's happening here, yeah. Yeah. Um and so I love that observation, not just because it mentions Arendelle, but <laughs> I wanted to add one of my own, which is to notice, and, and this is where I want to go back to the Song of the White, because oh, yeah, there's, yeah. A, there's a real contrast between the last lines of this song and the last lines of the Song of the White. If you remember that, you know, you talked about that very dark vision of, right. uh, of, of the end of yeah, the, the world, the dark world, vision of right. a dead world. In the black wind, the stars shall die, and still on gold here let them lie, till the dark lord lifts his hand over dead sea and withered land. Yeah. You know, the white is basically saying, you're stuck here in my barrow until the end of the world. But it oh. is this dark vision of the end of the world in which evil wins. Yeah. Tom, on the other hand, is... Also, banishing the white until the end of the world. It's, it's just as permanent of a, you know, a curse, if you will, or banishment. Right. But his vision of the end of the world is when the world is mended. Right. Absolutely. And this is a clear reference to Arda Remade, which is the ultimate yeah. triumph of, of good when Iluvatar will remake Arda and fix or mend all the errors of Arda Mard. And so I just right. think it's, 
it's just a fascinating difference in perspective between these two Boy, it uh, really these two is. supernatural characters, you know. They both sort of look to that apocalyptic moment, but mm-hmm. the apocalyptic right. moment is entirely different. Right, exactly. Uh, I mean, the, as, as 180 degrees opposite each other. Right. The whites uh, is all death and destruction and cold. And, 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 and almost completely like, you know, nihilistic sort of, you know, everything's yeah. just going to be burned to nothing. Yeah. Uh, and, and, you know, and Tom Tom's is talking is, about. No, the world is going to be mended. Yeah, it's going to become the way it was intended to be all mm-hmm. along. No more Melkor element, you know. Exactly. No more. Uh, the whole concept of Morgoth's ring with Arda yeah. being all this corruption that, that's that's within yeah. within Arda itself. It's yep. part of part and parcel of everything in the world because of Morgoth. Right. right. My goodness. I'm going to go ahead and pick up shortly after that. Then here, this is where the they they bring the hobbits out onto the grass. Oh, by the way, so we get the long trailing shriek. Do we get the no? We're getting the next thing. Okay, we're getting that in the next paragraph. Sorry, <laughs> I'm jumping Sorry. ahead of myself, but that's okay. We do that. Come, friend Frodo, said Tom. Let us get out onto clean grass. You must help me bear them. Together they carried out Merry, Pippin, and Sam. As Frodo left the barrow for the last time, he thought he saw a severed hand wriggling still like a wounded spider in a heap of fallen earth. Tom went back in again, and there was a sound of much thumping and stamping. When he came out, he was bearing in his arms a great load of treasure, things of gold, silver, copper and bronze, many beads and chains and jeweled ornaments. He climbed a green barrow and laid them all on top in the sunshine. There he stood, with his hat in his hand and the wind in his hair, and looked down upon the three hobbits that had been laid on their backs upon the grass at the west side of the mound. Raising his right hand, he said in a clear and commanding voice, "'Wake now, my merry lads, wake and hear me calling!' Warm now, be heart and limb, the cold stone is fallen. Dark door is standing wide, dead hand is broken. Night under night is flown, and the gate is open. To Frodo's great joy, the hobbits stirred, stretched their arms, rubbed their eyes, and then suddenly sprang up. They looked about in amazement, first at Frodo, and then at Tom, standing large as life on the barrow top above them, and then at themselves, in their thin white rags, crowned and belted with pale gold and jingling with trinkets. What in the name of wonder, began Mary, feeling the golden circlet that had slipped over one eye. Then he stopped, and a shadow came over his face and he closed his eyes. Of course I remember, he said. The men of Carn Doom came on us at night and we were worsted. Ah, the spear in my heart! He clutched at his breast. No, no, he said, opening his eyes. What am I saying? I've been dreaming. Where did you get to, Frodo? I, wow. Hmm. You know, we talked about the gate and, and the idea that uh, this is, uh, Tom is sending into the same place. Yeah. But here the gate is open. Can't be the same gate. Can't be, no. Absolutely must be a different gate. Yeah. I don't know that we, I, mean, I don't this know that must... I spent enough time researching that. I need to, maybe that's a, that might be something to talk about in our uh, postscript. That might be, yeah, I think that may be something to look into. I don't know what we're going to find on it, but I mean, I wonder no. if this is just, you know, we talked about the possibility that there is some sort of other world that they're entering yeah. in yeah. when they go into the barrow. Maybe it's just the gate back from that. The gate is open yeah, to, to the barrow. Yeah. Hmm. Back to the back to the real world, you know, back to the, oh, the yeah, surface yeah, yeah. world. There you go. He's opening the gate from the barrow back to the, the yeah. real physical world. Okay. Yeah. That works. That works to me. Maybe. I don't know. Yeah. Because the white would then be, you know, the white would be a creature that that lurks near the gate 
that lures right. people into its side of the gate right beneath the barrow and you know then there's kind of a kind of a poetic justice to banishing the white out where gates stand forever shut you know where it can't right. do any harm to anybody in the real world anymore i i don't know it's just spitballing yeah. there i'd be interested no, to I look think, into yeah, it though that's a, that's something we'll have to spend some time on dead hand is broken so there there's part of it plus we also read it earlier about the severed hand wriggling still like a wounded spider and then yeah. the thumping and stamping. I think the that's. And st- I really wish that didn't happen off camera. I mean, I just I want to watch Tom. I want to watch stomp, him smush stomp and... the hand into a pile of crypt dust. You know. <laughs> I love the idea. Take that and that and that and, and this for Do good measure. Do you hear me stomping? <laughs> Don't you Tom hear me here stomping? is crushing you. <laughs> oh goodness! Turning that. Don't you crush my lilies. <laughs> I'll crush his lilies. There you go. I'm going to crush your lilies right there. Um, yeah, we're going to get more to to Mary's vision, but I wanted to make sure we had a chance to touch on that first. Yeah. But yeah, they, 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 they're, they're, he brings out the entire load, and we're going to get there in a little bit about what he does with that treasure. Uh, but for now, I want to go ahead and touch on that dream, that vivid waking dream. You wanna, yeah, you've got something is, to start with, right? This is really powerful. This, this is, is another big. one of those. Yeah, yeah. This is another one of those moments that when I first read this, I was like, "Wait, what?" You know, it, yeah. it's just one of those things that just it's just hints at this much deeper world. Yeah, and, yeah. Um, this really does, doesn't it? Part of why, yeah, and part of why, you know, this this story changes so much when you know more of the history. In Appendix A, so this actually is found in Lord of the Rings, but... True. Not not, <laughs> not everybody reads the appendices. Not everybody reads the appendices, and I don't think anybody reads them before reading the story for the first well, time. Well, I hope not. Spoilers. Yeah. A, little, a little bit of a spoiler. <laughs> Tale of Years pretty much ruins the whole story. <laughs> pretty much, yeah. So, oh, so they destroy the ring. Okay. Yeah. Um, appendix A, Roman numeral one little Roman numeral three, says that after the split of the Northern Kingdom, remember Arnor split into these three um, right. uh, splinter kingdoms or whatever. Arthodyne, Rudauer, and, right? and Cardolan. Yeah. And we learned that a great host came out of Angmar in 1409 and crossing the river entered Cardolan and surrounded Weathertop. The Dunedine were defeated. The Tower of Amon Sul was burned and razed, but the Palantir was saved and carried back in retreat to Fornost. Rudauer was occupied by evil men subject to Angmar, and the Dunedain that remained there were slain or fled west. Cardolan was ravaged. A remnant of the faithful among the Dunedain of Cardolan also held out in Tirn Gorthad, that's the Barrow Downs, mm-hmm. or took refuge in the forest behind. And then later, when the Great Plague came in 1636, so that's over 200 years later, right. we learned that it was at this time that an end came of the Dunedain of Cardolan. And evil spirits out of Angmar and Rudar entered into the deserted mounds and dwelt there. That's right. And that's also when we found out that that's when the Witch King himself sent those evil spirits there. Right. Exactly. Now, as Hammond and Skull point out, Mary's remarks indicate that in his dreams or trance, he has been experiencing the last hours of the Prince of Cardolan. But the Barrow White is not the ghost of this prince but one of the evil spirits who came to the mounds some 200 years after the prince's death as an agent of the witch king of Angmar. Now, Tom Shippey concurs with Hammond and Skull on this and adds a, a fairly creepy bit saying that the white then does not come from the people buried in the barrow 
and what it seems to be doing in some way or other is trying to relive an earlier triumph by turning the hobbits once again into the people buried in the barrow through the influence of the clothes and the treasure, and then once again killing them. Thank you, mm. Tom, for that lovely thought, but I think wow. he's absolutely right. Uh, yeah. Yeah. So He's reenacting. It's, he's, yes. he's a historical reenactor. Um, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. Just another. Oh, way I just of do it a couple is, weekends every summer. It's just, you know, it's just a hobby. You know, every once in a while, I let a white dress me up like a man of Cardalon and kill me, you know. Right. Exactly. Now, I should also mention, by the way, that that quote comes from uh, an essay entitled Orcs, Wraiths, Whites Tolkien's Images of Evil in a collection of essays called Roots and Branches. I love that collection of essays. That amazing that. collection that you have and I do not. And I need to get oh, well, it. There you go. Yeah. So, if you're tracking to that, Mary is not possessed by the white, as you might think. He's actually, he's channeling the spirit well, yeah. of the, yeah. the man who belongs in that barrel. Possessed and, might be a strong word. Yeah, you're right. He's more like uh, channeling well, or... Yeah, I mean, well, is, yeah, but he's not, but it's not the white that he's, no, that he's no, channeling, no, you're right. I guess is what I'm no, saying. No, I knew it's what you like meant. It's, I Yeah, I mean, he's, it's, he's channeling the... The prince, the, the prince of Carbon. The prince who's, who's supposed to, who's, who's buried there. And so, right. yeah, this idea that... The, the whites have done this to the hobbits to dress them up so that they can basically kill them again, kind of relive their glory days. Right. Oh. I, mean, I can just see the white talking chilling. to one of his buddies. Remember way back when? We used we to kill princes all the time back in the us. day, man. Yeah, that was awesome. Let's go find somebody we can kind of do that again. Yeah. I don't know why we sound more like Batman and the white. <laughs> there you go. Yeah, that's just so creepy, man. Isn't I, it? Isn't it? Yeah. Uh, but yeah. Mm. But it makes it makes sense. I mean, it, it makes more sense than any other reading of that. But I think yeah. probably every time that I've read this passage before, I've always thought that, you know, Mary was remembering the white's memories from life. But but no, it's no. something much more sinister than that. Much more sinister. Absolutely. So after this section, we're not going to read this bit, but Sam realizes the clothes are gone. <laughs> Sam's always the practical one. You know, wait a minute, where are my clothes? Right. So, you know, Tom laughs, tells them, look, you're not going to find your clothes. Um, <laughs> oh, those I, are gone. Those are, <laughs> oh, those. <laughs> uh, I do love one little line that, that's in this section we're skipping. The horror faded out of their hearts as they looked at him and saw the merry glint in his eyes. Oh, that's great. Yeah. Isn't it's like it? They're, yeah. It's like, uh, it's like that feeling when you've, you know, just awakened from a nightmare. Yeah. You know? And you see the safest thing you can possibly see, a really yeah. weird man in a blue hat and yellow boots. <laughs> Under the circumstances. <laughs> right, right. If I see that safe. when I wake up, somebody's going to get punched. Yeah. But, you know, this is a good thing. <laughs> no, I, I love that moment just because it reminds us of the power that Tom has uh, and, and just the influence that his presence alone has yeah. over the hobbits here. It's a really beautiful thing. Yep. Very yeah. cool stuff. So, but there is a section here that I do want you to read coming up here uh, regarding the clothes and and kind of Tom's advice, his, not so much advice, but maybe reminder about priorities. Would be Definitely. But Tom shook his head saying, you've found yourselves again out of the deep water. Clothes are but little loss if you escape from drowning. Be glad, my merry friends, and let the warm sunlight heat now heart and limb. Cast off these cold rags. Run naked on the grass while Tom goes a-hunting. He sprang away downhill, whistling and calling. Looking down after him, Frodo saw him running away southwards, 
along the green hollow between their hill and the next, still whistling and crying. Hey now, come hoy now, whither do you wander? Up, down, near or far, here, there, or yonder. Sharp ears, wise nose, swish tail, and bumpkin. White socks, my little lad, and old fatty lumpkin. So he sang, running fast, tossing up his hat and catching it, until he was hidden by a fold of the ground. But for some time his hey now, hoy now, came floating back down the wind, which had shifted round towards the south. Hmm. Interesting advice or, or wisdom there. Hey, you know what? I wouldn't worry about your clothes. You're alive. You're alive. Yep. Yeah. I I don't know that I like the next bit of advice, though, which is to go running naked. Just on go the run grass. naked on the grass. Not. Rarely uh, is that good advice. Rarely. Very rarely. Especially Certainly if not. grass makes you itch in any way. Yeah. Um, or if you're at any kind of sporting event. Oh, oh um, yeah. Yeah. That'll get you arrested right quick. Yeah. Yeah. Um, this is item number one on the list of things that will never happen at a live moot. I just want to point that out. <laughs> Did you? I don't like to say never. Uh, yeah, I like know. to say never on something like this. Yeah, <laughs> I, I will. You know, I'll say never a, a second time. time. If you if you do it, you'll never co-host the show with me again. How's that? <laughs> oh, uh, I would never a... do it. I would no, never okay. do it. I'm just saying, I I don't pretend to know the future. That's oh, all. somebody else might do it, somebody but not us. Somebody else might do it, yeah. Yeah, no. I, I, I guess my point was just count it as those things among which we would never participate is, is what We I'm would, n- absolutely. We would never, no, I, yeah. No. Terrible, no. terrible thing. I try not to run naked anywhere, actually. Just pretty as much. A, just pretty as much a, as a rule general of thumb. rule. Yeah. It's Grass. more of a guideline. <laughs> nope. Yeah. Hard rule for me. Hard rule, I know. No, I know. I could, I could see Tom saying, you know, cast off these cold rags, run naked on the grass. We decline to acquiesce to your request. <laughs> it means, it means no. no. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, oh, not man. a chance. He goes a hunting and he sees some very odd names. Names we haven't yeah. heard before. Yeah. Sharp ears, wise nose, which might be the pony that... <laughs> Turned tail when Frodo the, the tried to run him. The one that said, "I'm not going in there." Said, yeah. uh-uh. No, no, Frodo. Uh-uh. <laughs> yeah. Uh, swish tail and bumpkin. White socks, my little lad, and old fatty lumpkin. Yeah. We're gonna learn a little bit. I mean, right now we we're only surmising that those are the names of the horses, but we'll find that out shortly. So I'm gonna read this paragraph, and then you'll talk a little bit about those names. Yep. And by and by paragraph, I mean two. <laughs> the air was growing very warm again. The hobbits ran about for a while on the grass, as he told them. Then they lay basking in the sun with the delight of those that had been wafted suddenly from bitter winter to a friendly clime, or of people that, after being long, ill, and bedridden, wake one day to find that they are unexpectedly well, and the day is again full of promise. By the time that Tom returned, they were feeling strong and hungry, and also naked. Um, He reappeared, hat first, over the brow of the hill. And behind him came in an obedient line six ponies, their own five, and one more. The last was plainly old fatty Lumpkin. He was larger, stronger, fatter, and older than their own ponies. Mary, to whom the others belonged, had not in fact given them any such names, but they answered the new names that Tom had given them for the rest of their lives. Tom called them one by one, and they climbed over the brow and stood in a line. Then Tom bowed to the hobbits. That's pretty cool. 
Yeah, like it is that. pretty cool. I love that he introduces them one at a time. I think that's really mm-hmm. cool. It's a, what a moment. Yeah. Ladies and gentlemen, now presenting Swish Tail. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, you know, it's great. And they've got really nice. Yeah, descriptive names. Nice un- descriptive names. It's not, you know, Rainbow Dash and Twilight Sparkle and, oh, you know, no, all those that no. fill my daughter's room. Yeah, yeah. But. um, So glad my daughter knows nothing of those. I should go next time my daughter brings out her ponies. She's got six of them. Of course. I you should, could I should rename start, them. I should just rename them, these things. Like, yeah. no, honey, that's not Pinkie Pie. That's Wise Nose. <laughs> the question is, though, will they answer to the new names that Sean had given them for the rest of their lives? If her plastic My Little Ponies answer to any name, I will be very scared. Run away. Run away. <laughs> Leave. Yeah, Leave just now. Very, very quickly. <laughs> we don't like I'm those names, for Sean. You. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Oh, goodness. Yeah. Um, I also thought it was interesting we find out that, and I think we might have learned this earlier, but that these ponies weren't just like, oh, I don't know, belonging to the property that they had at Crick Hollow or, or something along those lines. These were Mary's personal ponies. Yeah. You know, yeah. And, and and in a day like that, these were, these are the equivalent of, of tools or cars. I mean, this would be like, Mary, oh, these, are, these the, would have been valuable things if, yeah. you know, if they'd been lost. These were valuable possessions for their sure. Their individual yeah. Porsches that they were driving on their journey uh, had all belonged to Mary. <laughs> you know, and Tom yeah. brings an SUV. Yeah. It's just interesting. And yet Mary had not named them, or at least had not no. named them those things. And and I love this. Uh, there's an observation by Hammond and Skull about how Tom gives these ponies these names that do highlight these these physical features or special abilities. And, right. And again, you know, most of them are self-explanatory. Sharp ears, right. wise nose. I don't know how he knew its nose was wise, but probably like you said, it's the one that yeah. ran away. Perception, uh, Swish tail. Right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. White yeah. socks. In the nomenclature, Tolkien has a little bit on Lumpkin. He says basically translators should translate that into whatever it translates to in their own language, explaining that the kin is, of course, a diminutive suffix. So Fatty Lumpkin's last name means something like Little Lump. Um, although <laughs> Hammond and Skull point I would change I know, my right? name. <laughs> it's not terribly flattering. Um, Hammond and Skull point oh, out come here, that, Little Lump. <laughs> oh, I'm Little Lump. It sounds like something you'd call your baby or something. But, I don't know. Not if you don't, not if you love him. <laughs> You know, people always have weird names for their baby, like Peanut and Pickle and Lump. But uh, (laughs) I've never heard Lump, but okay. Well, this it's going to get worse because Hammond and Skull point out that (laughs) Lump in this case may not mean you know like a lump of putty, a compact mass of no definite shape. It might actually mean sort of the colloquial meaning of a lump is a a big or fat or stupid person or animal. Mm. So it's not a flattering name. (laughs) No, it isn't. Probably. As for bumpkin, it's much the same. Hammond yeah, and Skull yeah. quote the concise Oxford English Dictionary, which says that it possibly derives from a Middle Dutch word, bumkin, which means little barrel, denoting okay. a dumpy person. Oh, so, a dumpy yeah, person. Nice. Yeah. So Tom gives them names, but they're not exactly dignified. <laughs> no, I, I'm sure White Sox is kind of like, thank goodness I dodged that one. <laughs> <laughs> right. I know. <laughs> I mean, just, Whoa. This is as bad as the sharp ears names got off pretty men. light. I mean, that, yeah. that one comes close to being a compliment. And yeah, wise nose, yeah. wise nose certainly is the is the kindest one of all. But oh my goodness! Well, no matter the whether they're flattering or not, the uh, ponies answer to these names for the rest of their lives. Yeah, yeah, they do, and that tells us, you know, either that Tom had a profound effect on them, or 
you know, kind of going back to that idea of him knowing the tune for Old Man Willow. Maybe he mm, yeah. had some insight into their true natures that, yeah, yeah. you know, a, a mere hobbit couldn't have, you know. Maybe. Maybe both. I don't know. Yeah, a little bit of both, certainly. Uh, so we're not going to read the next little bit, but thankfully the hobbits freaking put some clothes on. Um, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and Tom And their punishment for running around. around naked is that they now have to sweat in their winter clothes. Yeah, seriously. And itch because this is grass. Yeah, right. <laughs> yep. So Tom explains where the, the ponies went, which is basically anywhere but where you were going, you dumb, stupid hobbits. <laughs> what is wrong with you people? They sniff danger right ahead, which you walk right into, you dummies. I mean, that's the unspoken yeah. little criticism there. Yep. So he explains also about Fatty, by the way. And then he tells them he's going to ride with them to the road. That's where you're going to pick up. Mm-hmm. Yep. And Fatty is thinking, you're going to ride me? Come on, man. Don't. I, you don't do that every me. so often, and I don't like it, Tom. You're getting, I, I never, you're not I getting never any smaller. I never have liked it, Tom. You're not getting any smaller. <laughs> he certainly isn't. Okay. Stomping around like a cow, running, you know, charging through the rushes. <laughs> yes, indeed. All right. But now, my jolly lumpkin, old Tom's going to ride. Hey, he's coming with you just to set you on the road, so he needs a pony. For you cannot easily talk to hobbits that are riding when you're on your own legs trying to trot beside them. The hobbits were delighted to hear this and thanked Tom many times. But he laughed and said that they were so good at losing themselves that he would not feel happy Ah. till he had seen them safe over the borders of his land. I've got things to do, he said, my making and my singing, my talking and my walking, and my watching of the country. Tom can't be always near to open doors and willow cracks. Tom has his house to mind and Goldberry is waiting. There you go. I love that. It, it really reminds them of, of his priorities, which are, of course, his home and Goldberry. But he did tell them to call if they needed help. Well, yeah, you're welcome to call if you need help. But, you know, clearly you're so incompetent that I'm going to have to lead you <laughs> to the borders of my land. <laughs> it's probably just better for all of us if I just see you to yeah. the edge of the I don't want to go home here. and have to come back again in 10 minutes. So I'm just going right. to ride with you, really. It's yeah. not a big deal. Fine. Just just go. Let's go. Um, and even though, obviously, his priorities are his house and, and Goldberry, I wanted to talk about something we read kind of earlier at the list of things that he's got to do about his making and his singing. Yeah. The word making really feels significant. Now, I don't think he's talking about, you know, basket weaving or macrame. Um, I think this is, this <laughs> no, is a word. That, so. No, this is a word that some people point to when they want to allege that Tom Bombadil is Eru. He's making, therefore he's a maker, so he must be the maker. Now, that doesn't right, really follow. Right, that's, yeah. That, yeah. that's not necessarily a logical conclusion. And certainly, if it weren't for what Tolkien said in, in his own letters, uh, we talked about this recently, and I think it was episode 115, we cited both 153 and 181 to make it really evident that Tolkien, uh, uh, yeah, explaining that there's no way that Tom could have been Eru because there is no uh, embodiment of the one in Arda, uh, right. specifically. Yeah, I mean, interestingly, I, I, I kind of feel like this reference to making proves the opposite. Uh, not only does it not prove that Tom is Iluvatar, I think uh-huh. it proves that he is not. And I'll show you how I get yeah. there, or I'll tell you how I get there, rather. Um, he mentions making alongside his singing. And this reminds me yeah. that the Greek word for maker is poetes, which is the origin of our word poet. Right. A poet in Greek is literally a maker. Uh, there are a couple of more nouns that are related to this word that mean making in Greek. 
One of them is poiesis, and that's a word you tend to find in academic contexts and things for, you know, for any creative production, any work of art. Okay. But another word from the same root, or I should probably say a word suffix that means making is poeia, as in mythopoeia or mythopoeia. Ah, now, longtime yes. listeners know we've talked about mythopoeia before, and oh, yes, yeah. the title does just mean myth-making. That's the poem by Tolkien that most clearly lays out his ideas about subcreation, right? Yeah. And he talks about subcreation as a microcosm of the original creation by God. Right. There is that line in there, we make still by the law in which we're made. Absolutely. I think Tom Bombadil being called a maker here or being saying, you know, referring to his making here, I think he's talking about subcreating here. I think mm -hmm. I think this is a hint that he is most certainly not the creator, the maker, but a subcreator. And I think maybe I don't know, he might be the purest example of a subcreator in Middle Earth because mm. Yeah. Unlike so many others, so many other sub-creators that we see, he makes without any thought of possession. Yeah. We talked about yeah. the fact that there's 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 no desire to possess the land or no. you know, or anything like that. He's just he just that makes. would be it's such like, a burden, as Goldberry that says. That would be right? such a burden, as Goldberry says. And so he just goes around making. And huh. and so I just I, I again I, I think Tolkien was very aware of his own ideas about uh, subcreation and obviously using words like pia and mythopia. I, I think he was very mm -hmm. aware of what he was doing here. And I think, no, that, I think so. I think that we need to see Tom as a subcreator. And, and I do want to revisit that a little bit in the next episode when we yep. finally start coming to some conclusions about, or maybe coming to some conclusions, <laughs> or at least talking more <laughs> at least about coming what to our exactly conclusions. he is. Yeah, exactly. And yeah. that's going to be great. But uh, that will do it for tonight's chapter discussion. But, you know, definitely be sure to join us again next week when we, uh, well, when we open the treasure and roll for our loot. <laughs> <laughs> yes, indeed. But before we reach into Barlaman's bag, we want to remind you about the fellowship of the podcast. If you've been listening recently, you've heard us talk about how close we were to our next goal of setting up a Discord server. Well, it turns out that our listeners have long anticipated our private humiliation, and we should have that set up by the time this airs. You know, I think all it takes is one look at our Facebook page, and it's pretty clear. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh, but to yep. keep that embarrassment amongst friends, that Discord server is going to be limited to our patrons at the gift of Gondor level or higher. So if you are interested in listening in live during an episode recording and hearing all the stuff that doesn't even make our blooper real, well, be sure to visit patreon.com slash prancingponypod. Now, when you sign up, you'll also get a bunch of other goodies. You'll get PPP swag. You'll get access to some very cool exclusive content, all sorts of good stuff. Uh, and check out our next goal of setting up a monthly live hangout with us on Discord, a chance to chat with a couple of your, well, hopefully favorite podcast hosts. Indeed. And if you're looking for a new Tolkien book, check out the official library pages at our website, theprancingponypodcast.com. We've put together a set of links for our listeners to all the books we've ever mentioned on the show, Tolkien or otherwise. And if you wouldn't mind posting a review on iTunes, we'd really be grateful for that. Folks, I know I say this at the end of every show, but it yeah. really is true. Those iTunes reviews increase our visibility. That means more new listeners finding us, more great questions coming in for Barlamin, more discussion on social media, and generally just a more vibrant Tolkien community. Absolutely. Uh, and we should also have our next T-shirts available for sale by the time this episode airs. Now, at the moment, we're still working on which designs and colors will be available this time around. But be sure to check out our Facebook page, that's at Prancing Pony Pod, for more details. 
Now, speaking of social media, it's also helpful if you share us there. So on Facebook, Reddit, Twitter, wherever. If you're there, Tolkien fans there, share us there. Please. Now, with that, it's time to see what old Barlaman has in the mailbag for us. Sean? Well, earlier in the episode, when poor Mary found himself a victim of the Barrow White's bizarre role play, we kind talked of cosplay, about the wars. really, isn't it? I mean, you know. Yeah, yeah. Is, really. is it cosplay when you it's force somebody of... else to wear the costume? <laughs> <laughs> that's a good question. I mean, that's a, that might not be cosplay yeah. anymore. I don't know. Yeah, it's, it's like forced LARPing. Forced cosplay. Extreme LARPing. Forced LARPing. Extreme LARPing. <laughs> or in this case, yep. DARP. Because, you know, he's not going to be live. That was the whole idea. <laughs> well done. Uh, I like uh, that. Yeah. Uh, uh, Darping. Um, <laughs> so we talked about the wars between Angmar and the kingdoms of the Dunedain. Well, David R. in Christchurch, New Zealand, raised some questions about this, particularly in regards to Sauron's, let's say, lack of knowledge about the hobbits being in the area. David wrote to us once before the end of the year to say, if the Lord of the Nazgul was the witch king of Angmar, why didn't Sauron know about the Shire? Hmm. And then a few weeks later, David wrote to us again with a little bit more saying, I still find it difficult to believe Sauron didn't know about the Shire. <laughs> for, and he gave a number of reasons. Um, sure. I, I will, you know, kind of paraphrase a little bit here. But, you know, basically including things like, you know, Eriador is not that big of a region for something the size of the Shire to go unnoticed. Okay. Um, and it is on the main road through the region. Right. Um, right. Sauron had spies that included birds and wild animals. Yeah. Sauron knew about Aragion, obviously. Yeah. Uh, we know that there were orc attacks on the Shire, you know, when golf was invented, right? Yep, yep. And, uh, you know, lots of other people and cultures had at least some knowledge of hobbits. Saruman, the Rohirrim, True. the Gondorians all had some knowledge. A, a lot of it is fragmentary, but they at least had yeah. heard of hobbits. And, you know, the fact that the rangers' protection of the Shire should have shown that there was, well, something there to protect. So David's question is, you know, what gives? Huh. Well, you know, that is a fair question. I, I'm not sure we can come up with a perfect answer, uh, but I do think some of the factors he's come up with might have easy answers. So I'll, t I'll take those and leave the hard ones for you. Oh, thank you. <laughs> for example, <laughs> you know, the Shire may not have been unnoticed in Eriador, but it could certainly be unlocated if all of Sauron's spies were, well, let's say, slain by the rangers before they could come back with information. Sauron yeah. would know there was something there to protect, but he wouldn't necessarily know exactly where in the region it was. He also mentions those orc attacks. You know, we know that the orcs attacked the Shire directly at the Battle of the Greenfields uh, when Vanderbus took invented golf, but that was long before Sauron had regained his power in Dol Guldur. There's nothing that suggests that those orcs were under direct orders from Sauron. In fact, I'd even argue that they couldn't have been because Sauron was not in any condition to be giving orders at that point. He hadn't yeah, that's regained any form. Uh, it was yeah. just a typical orc raid. It's not as though, you know, orcs are sitting around doing needlework, uh, waiting for Sauron to tell them to raid a, a village. Right. When they're bored, they're raiding. Yeah. Right. Exactly. It's not like there's, like I said, they're not watching the Hallmark Channel. You know what I mean? Um, <laughs> <laughs> not even orcs watch the Hallmark Channel. No, no, that's true. Those 10-minute commercial breaks drive them crazy. Yeah. So no information was going to get back to, to Sauron from an orc raid that was just an orc raid because they're orcs. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and yeah, you know, you mentioned all those people, the Saruman and the Rohirrim and the folks at Gondor, they all knew about or had some sort of memory of hobbits. And so did Sauron. He, just like those, thought they weren't worth his attention. You know, he never paid attention to them until he realized that he needed to. And well, once he realized that they were worth his attention, he sent the ringwraiths to the Anduin because that's the last place he knew they'd been. Yeah. Yeah. I think you're right. And I think, you know, not worth his attention. I think that goes a long way towards explaining why 
Sauron didn't pick up on the many clues that were available. Yeah. Yes, the the Shire was right there in Eriador hiding in plain sight. But, you know, still, like, there's just, he wouldn't have no reason to pay attention to it until, right. frankly, it was too late. <laughs> yeah. Um, I think of all the possible reasons why he should have known, I think David's original email has the most compelling one. The fact that the Witch King of Angmar was right there. Yeah. You know, he went to he went to war against Arthodyne in uh, Third Age 1974. That would have been 373 years after the Shire had been founded. And it would have been uh, at the as, height of the bell-bottom craze. 1974. Totally. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Disco wasn't quite, you know, wasn't quite there yet. Punk no. really wasn't there yet. It was. Certainly not. Yeah. But sorry, really, that's fourth age. Really, the golden age of prog rock at that time. Really, the, you know. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Yeah, but no. So the Shire had been there uh, for three hundred seventy-three years. Now, I will point out that even though three hundred seventy-three years might seem like a long time to us, yeah, like a really, really long time. Right. Exactly. In a pre-modern civilization, I don't think that that's really that much time for the Shire to have grown to the point where anyone really noticed it, especially considering mm. how isolationist hobbits tend to be. True, um, true. You know, uh, they had been there for that time, but they're not really... They're not on the world stage, right? They're not, yeah. Ex exactly. Yeah. That's that's exactly it, yeah. They're not, they're not on the world stage, as you say. They're just kind of doing their own thing and probably growing much slower than we think in that time. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And considering that the Witch King's attention was really on the Dunedain right on his doorstep, not the halflings in this little backwater province across the Brandywine. True. I don't think it's that surprising that they escaped his notice for as long as they did. Yeah, I think you're right. I mean, especially when the prologue tells us that the hobbits were ruled by their own chieftains and meddled not at all with events in the world outside. Mm. Now, the next line might be a cause for confusion for some of us because it does actually tell us they sent archers to fight against Angmar. It says, to the last battle at Fornost with the witch lord of Angmar, they sent some bowmen to the aid of the king or so they maintain, though no tales of men recorded. Well, yeah, but, I mean, if no tales of men recorded, it's probably unlikely that any tales of the Witch King recorded it either. That's if they even if he even bothered having anybody take notes. <laughs> right. Um, but, you know, they were archers, Here, Gormag, too. Here, make sure you chronicle this entire thing. We, we gotta, <laughs> we got to keep it's records of this. It's for posterity. <laughs> and, and, of course, these hobbits were archers. They were probably standing near the back shooting arrows from a distance. It's not like they were charging the Angmar ranks right in front of the Witch King, shouting, for the Shire! Right. Yeah, no, that's a good point. And I think even if they had been up in the front lines, or if they made their way to the front lines somehow, there's just no reason to believe that... Yeah, somehow the, the front lines were driven way, way back, and the hobbits didn't <laughs> Somehow move. the front lines disappeared, and the archers became the front line. Yeah, that's a bad uh, moment for the archers. That <laughs> is. But there's just no reason to believe that the forces of Angmar had ever seen anything like no. them before or had any idea where they came, came oh, from. Oh, cute. Think, they're bringing their children to battle. So, How nice is that? They're so adorable. They've given their kids bows. Kill him. But I think all this makes sense when you consider, again, that the bad guys didn't know that the hobbits were worth paying attention exactly. to. Exactly. Yeah. I think it all goes back to that. And I think that yeah. if they had any idea that these little guys were going to spell their doom, yeah, they would have taken notice for sure. Hey, hobbits, how do you spell doom? <laughs> All right. U.S. Well, yeah. Well, we've got time for one more question, I think, from the mailbag. It's from Greg in Winston-Salem, North Carolina, and his nine-year-old son, Rex, who Greg says is working his way into becoming a full-blown Tolkien fan. He asks, is there a best or just better way to approach the world of Middle-earth? And what role do all these support materials, video games, podcasts, movies, play here? 
Are we past the time when younger folks will start with the books or ever read them at all, or even the movies with the Amazon show looming? He goes on to say, my first exposure to the work came from the 1970s animated films. Imperfect though they are, they started me on the path. I read The Hobbit and Unfinished Tales and made a few attempts at The Lord of the Rings, finally moving all the way through them in my early 20s. That was my path. And years later, the Jackson movies served to bring the, the stories back to the forefront of people's minds. Mm-hmm. He says, though, that Rex, on the other hand, had a different path. I read him The Hobbit when he was around six. He did enjoy it, but did not fully embrace it. His next exposure was through the Lego Lord of the Rings video game. We then read The Hobbit together again. He then read it on its own, then began playing The Hobbit video game, and is now working through the Lord of the Rings books on his own. He's a very strong reader, but I wonder if the books would captivate him in the same way without having the introduction that came from the video games. We have just this weekend watched the first Jackson movie. And then I just have to add this. Greg includes this, and it is a real treat. So thank you, Greg. He says, the Prancing Pony podcast has been no small part of all of this. We timed our listening of the episodes on The Hobbit to coincide with his reading. He didn't want to get ahead. Thank you so much for the effort and enthusiasm you bring to the show each week. I hope it pleases you to know that the podcast is now a formative and important part of at least one new fan's understanding of being a fan of Tolkien. Oh, wow. Oh, that's heartwarming. Thank you, Greg. Yeah. That's, that is awesome. And it certainly does please us. Oh, absolutely. 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 And uh, Rex, welcome to the world of Tolkien. We're, we're really glad to help mm-hmm. you along on your path. And I hope that these will just be the, the first steps for you in a, a long road of uh, yeah. wonder and enjoyment as much as a we've A road that from. goes ever on and on, as a matter of <laughs> Indeed, fact. Indeed, yeah. So getting to Greg's question, is there a best or, or maybe a, a more effective or a better way to approach the entirety of the world of Middle Earth? I mean, obviously, we're going to say read the books, right? But, but what about sure, all yeah. this other media? Well, obviously, a good Tolkien podcast is essential. Oh, of course. But, uh, <laughs> I can think of at least two. <laughs> yeah. But uh, no, the truth is, uh, I don't, you know, he talked about video games a lot. I, I, to be honest, I don't really keep up with games enough to know how popular mm-hmm. or how good some of the Middle Earth video games that are out now are. I mean, uh-huh. honestly, dude, the last Middle Earth video games I remember playing, I, this would have been like on my Packard Bell 386 oh, in wow. high school. There was, wow. There is one called War in Middle Earth. Yeah. I think that came out in 1988. And another one called Riders of Rohan, which I think was 91. Yeah. And by the way, if anybody out there remembers playing those games, please email me and let's talk because I I love those games so much. You know, the 16 color (laughs) graphics. 16 color. Yeah. VGA, man. No, 16 color. That was only EGA, wasn't it? That was EGA, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. VGA was 256. You're right. Right. But um, boy, so yeah, I'm I'm not totally up on the video games, but Alan, I mean, you've played like Lord of uh-huh. the Rings online, and you've sure. played some of the Shadow of what is it, Shadow of, Shadow War, of War, Shadow of Mordor, right? I have. I mean, indeed, my my other nerd hobby for well, for many years at least, I have to admit, almost none at all lately, uh, has been video games. Uh, I've played a, a bunch. Podcast of Podcast will do that to you. A podcast will certainly do that to you, and so will young children. I. It's not just yeah. the podcast, but you know, when the kids came along, the, the time to play video games has been limited. So it's more like hey, I've got 20 minutes, I'll play a driving game or something. I, I don't get to sit down for Anything hours Anything that's like time. longer that you really oh, need yeah. to like stick Long with. Long sessions, like, yeah. I can't, yeah. I just don't get a chance to. Yeah, I think I I'm still that. playing Skyrim like, what, seven years after it came out. I still haven't finished it. Um, Honestly, my wife and I are still playing Diablo 3 for like, there you the, go. I don't know, yeah. how many. We've, we've bought it on like four or five different platforms now, you know. Yeah, yeah. Just because it's, it's what we know and it's what we like. So, yeah. Yeah, it's might as well. Us. If it's the only game you've got, then make it a good one. Yep. 
Um, yep. But but I have played a bunch of those Middle Earth based games going back. I think I remember a couple of those, the, uh, one or two of the, the ones you mentioned. But going back at least to Interplay's 1990, The Lord of the Rings Volume One, up through Electronic Arts Battle for Middle Earth, Snowblind's War in the North, and not to mention one of my favorites, The Lord of the Rings: The Third Age, which came out on the original Xbox, the one that was about the size of a small car, uh, back mm, in yeah. 2004. <laughs> um, and and of course, yes, The Lord of the Rings Online or Lotro and the more recent orc-killing simulators called Shadow of Fill-in-the-Blank. Um, the only one I'd, or, or Middle-Earth Assassin's Creed, really, is kind of what those games are. But uh, the only one I'd say is really worth the time, if you care about the lore, is Lotro. Uh, we talked about it at length with Michael Drought. He was involved, of course, yeah. in some of the background material, some of the, the old English, uh, the Rohiric material. Yeah. And I have to say that the team there does a really faithful job, at least as much as can be uh, in the medium of being true to the established Middle-earth lore. That cannot be said for the Shadow games. Uh, they might be yeah. fun. They're fun running around and finding clever ways to kill orcs and stuff. But don't think for a minute they represent Middle-earth because the lore is so far gone as to be, honestly, to me, it's honestly insulting to, to the, the lore. The that little bit with. I know of those games, yeah. I mean, I, I've never played them, but I've you know I've read some of the articles about some of the Oh. Some of the stuff they've done to the lore. It, it's and absurd. Like, I mean, it goes beyond. Yeah. You think Keely and Tariel is kind of like, you know, <laughs> anti-canon. That's nothing. They are Arwen and Aragorn in comparison to some of the junk that they come up with in these games. <laughs> I, I mean, yeah, seriously, I've, it is absurd. I've heard some of the stuff they've come up with. Isildur becoming a, one of the Ringwraiths, becoming one of the nine. Yeah. Isildur. Yeah. The, yeah. Yeah, that's Shelob in the form of some you know, sexy, slinky woman. Yes, it's just, it's that's crazy. That's the article I remember reading. I was like, they did what with Shelob yeah. now? Like, yeah. Yeah. It's it's nuts. It's it's a really, I mean, okay, I get it. It's an adaptation, but it's it, it's not an, an, a recognizable adaptation. Let's right, put it that right. way. Yeah. But I have heard people say that they're fun games, you know. Oh, yeah, yeah. I, as a I, game, I as a pure, yeah. just from a gaming experience, yeah. yeah. Uh, I mean, they're a grind. They're a ton of grind. Uh, mm -hmm. But, you know, they're they're really good graphics if you have a good graphic card they're clever yeah. and fun they have great music uh but yeah it, it, it's not a lore thing i would say lotro really certainly the only current game uh that is uh, relatively faithful yeah and i that i mean that fits yeah. with everything that i've heard and, yeah. and and again it's it's not it's not a world that i'm that i'm terribly up on anymore but no. uh yeah, I've definitely heard everything you're saying about them. And, you know, what I because I'm not really that plugged into that world, you know, one thing I, I don't know is, you know, do those games appeal primarily to, to gamers who already know Tolkien's world or mm. are people discovering Middle Earth through the games? I mean, huh. I have to think that at this point, like most players getting into those games must at least know the Peter Jackson movies, oh, yeah, right? Yeah. It, it's almost yeah. impossible not to know those movies. I mean, yeah, it's true. The, the shadow if you, of if you're games, too young to watch those movies, you're probably too young to play those games. Oh, most right? certainly, yeah. yeah the, the, especially yeah. those shadow games are pretty pretty violent. But uh, yeah, they're very heavily inspired by Jackson's vision of the of the world. That's what I thought. Uh, yeah. So I, I think you know anybody playing those is certainly at least familiar with the films. I you know there, I'm sure there's a little bit of both. There are people who discover yeah. Tolkien's world through the games and then go to the books. And there are people who have read the books and decide they, they want to immerse themselves in the world. I tend to yeah. think the people who've read the books would immerse themselves more into Lotro, <laughs> but that's just me. Yeah, that, that makes sense to me. And, yeah. I, and I honestly think we're already at the point where 
the Peter Jackson movies are many people's first entry into the world. Oh, yeah, of course. I think just because, you know, probably a, a lot of people are watching those movies at a slightly younger age than they're reading the books. I don't know. Well, TNT shows it something like 18 yeah. times a month these days. So, yeah, yeah I'm pretty yeah. sure. And if it's the Lord of the Rings movies, I'll put it on every time it's oh, on. Oh, yeah. Pretty yeah. much. But, you know, as Greg said, I mean, people getting introduced to the books through the movies is nothing new. Even in no. the 1970s, people were discovering the books through, you know, Rankin and Bass and Ralph Bakshi's cartoon. That's how I discovered it. Remember, my first copy of The Hobbit yeah. was the Rankin and Bass. Was the Rankin and Bass illustrated yeah. one, right? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So, yeah, I mean, so is there a better way or a best way to discover Tolkien's world? Um, I mean, I'm probably biased. I, I discovered the books first. Yeah. Uh, and, and, and I think regardless of whichever one you discover first, I, I think you can't really enter Tolkien's world unless you've read Tolkien's books. Yeah. You know, absolutely. And I, and I like, I I like Peter Jackson's Lord of the Rings movies. Uh, I like, uh, I like the Rankin and Bass Hobbit. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah. I have made no, no, no attempt to hide my opinion of Jackson's Hobbit movies or Bakshi's Lord (laughs) of the Rings movies. I'm not really a fan (laughs) of those. No. But you know, if they lead people to the books, I think that's great. You know, and if the Amazon series is good, I'll be happy. Uh, if it ends up not being my cup of tea, but it gets a new generation of people interested in the books, then I'll, I'll be happy about that. Yeah. I mean, I, I am thrilled to have new readers come aboard, no matter how they've come into the tale. But it's new readers that I want to see, not just new fans. I mean, you can love the other adaptations all you want. I agree. But let them lead you to Tolkien's Middle Earth, the real Middle Earth. Now, look, I know that can sound haughty, maybe even a little elitist. But like you said, you can't really enter Tolkien's world until you've actually read Tolkien. Not Jackson, not Bakshi, not Amazon, you know, none of those. Mm-hmm. You've got to read Tolkien to yeah. really understand Tolkien's world. But I am thrilled when somebody who might never have even opened the books in the first place decides to go ahead and do that because they love the films first, even if they were terrible films like the Hobbit trilogy. Did I just yeah. say that out loud, that they were terrible? I did, didn't I? <laughs> Again. Yeah, yeah, sorry. Okay. Um, no, and, and I'm with you. I mean, I think, <laughs> you know, look, I've got lots of friends uh, and, you know, and family members who all they know is the movies, all they're interested right. in the movie in is the movies. And, you know, that's fine. I, I do wish they would read the books. I'm not going to say anybody is, uh, is wrong not to read the books, but I do, well, no. I do think anybody who's a fan of the story should at least try to read the books. Right. Um, you might be surprised how approachable <laughs> they are, how much, yeah. how much fun they are. And again, if you haven't read the books, you, you don't know Tolkien's world. You know somebody right. else's version of Tolkien's world. Exactly. That, you don't know Middle Earth. In you know Jackson's more or less places, but right, exactly. And just for me, uh, I personally fell in love with Tolkien's world, and I want others yep. to fall in love with it as well. I mean, yeah, it's after all one of the reasons we do the show. Isn't that it really is, so, isn't it? Yeah, you're absolutely yeah. right. So you know, hey, however, however anybody comes to Tolkien's world, um, I always love hearing that somebody is discovering these works for the first time, and so. Mm-hmm. I really do love hearing that you shared the Prancing Pony podcast with your son, Greg. Thank you so much for that. Uh, And Rex, again, thank you for letting us help you find your way through Middle Earth. Uh, And either one of you, please email us anytime you'd like. We'd love to hear from you. Absolutely. And you know, that is flat out. Again, I should say, we'd love to hear from you again. (laughs) You know what I meant. I did. You know, agreed. That really is flat out one of the best things we've ever had the privilege of hearing. Yeah. To know that we've helped you introduce your son to Tolkien. And that's a real privilege. That's the kind of thing that keeps us going when the process gets hard. And sometimes it really does. Uh, but knowing yeah. what a help we can be to folks is, is a real encouragement. 
Yeah, so it really is. Well, on that note, it does wrap it up for another episode of the Prancing Pony podcast. But be sure to join us again next week when Tom's history lesson conjures up visions of tall, grim men. Well, that certainly doesn't describe us, does it? (laughs) No, it doesn't. (laughs) Thanks again for listening. And thank you for making our common room on Facebook such a fun place to spend time. We want all of you to be a part of this conversation, and it does not stop when the episode ends. See the comments, the questions, the corrections, and more on Facebook at the Prancing Pony Podcast, on Twitter at Prancing Pony Pod, and on Instagram at Prancing Pony Pod. Tall, grim men. We're just short, silly men. We are short, silly men. One out of three ain't bad. (laughs) (laughs) Yep. Well, as always, we also want to issue a very, very special thank you to our patrons at the Cure Dance Contribution Tier. Uh, that's Demay in Alaska, James in Virginia, Tamsin in Minnesota, Emily in Texas, and Chad in Texas. Thank you very much. Make sure you don't miss any episodes of the Prancing Pony Podcast. Subscribe to the show through iTunes, Spotify, or your favorite podcast app. And one last thing as always, don't forget to send your thoughts, comments, and most of all, your stories of running naked on the grass. Stories only, please. Uh, no pictures. To okay. Barnuman right. at theprancyponypodcast.com. Yeah, if it's anything other than a text or a doc file, I'm not opening it. Nope. Uh, we'll try to get those stories into our next show. <laughs> well, however long we've had, it is still far too short a time to spend amongst such excellent and admirable listeners, even if it is far more time than we'd like to spend among people running naked on the grass. But <laughs> until next time. Farewell, friends. <laughs>